Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1 for our scripture reading. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. short scripture reading here for this morning, but you'll see how it uh, relates to our text. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. Now uh, turn back in your Bibles just a little bit to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 1. And we're going to finish the introduction today. Okay, we're going to we're going to get through it, and that might mean we're going to have to go pretty fast over a few things. But we're going to get through the introduction. So uh, that the introduction is verses one through seven, verses one through seven of Romans chapter one, and uh, let me read this for us. That way we have the whole context in our mind as we look at the last three verses. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. 
to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just pause and have another word of prayer. Father, we ask that now as we come to your word, as we come to the study of it, we ask that our minds would be open, that our hearts would be submissive to how your spirit is going to use this in each one of us. And Father, it's our desire from studying your word that we would be different that we would be changed, that we would not be the same people as we were when we came in here this morning. It's our desire to put ourselves under your authority through your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in these first verses that we have here in this introduction, we have the writer who is Paul, and Paul describes himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ, a called apostle, as someone who is separated to the gospel of God. And his message, the message of Paul is the gospel of God. And this message, this gospel of God was promised by God the Father it came through the apostles and it is found in the Holy Scriptures and it is about his son. And Paul describes God's son. Paul describes his son. He says his son is human and we see the humanity by the son's birth, by the son's ethnicity and genealogy and even his experience on the earth. Paul also says that the Son is divine. The Son is God. He is uniquely the Son of God. He has power. He is faithful, faithfully obedient to the Father. And all of this is demonstrated by the fact that he was raised from the dead, the resurrection of the dead. Paul brings his description of his son to the climax by giving us his name, Jesus, his title, Christ, Messiah, and his position, Lord. Now today we're going to continue in verse 5 and 6, and we're going to consider the work of the son, the work of the son. And in my Sunday school class, we're also considering the work of the Son, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. In Sunday school, we're going to be considering it from a broad perspective. What all does the Son do? Here this morning, though, it's very narrow. Paul is talking about a very specific work of the Son, of Jesus Christ. And we see in this work that something is provided Something is being provided. So let's take a look at the son's work. The son's work, verses 5 and 6. Again, it says, through him, it's talking about Jesus Christ, the son, 
Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want us to see here is that the Son is going to do a work of provision, and I want us to see the source, the source of the provision. So at the beginning of verse 5, it says that through him we have received. So the provision comes through Jesus Christ. Now, since Jesus is the means or the person through whom the provision is made, it doesn't necessarily mean he is the source of the provision. In fact, the source of the provision is God the Father. The provision is from God and it comes through Jesus Christ. By the way, that's sort of like a truism. That's just like a general statement of truth. That God the Father provides things and those things are mediated to us through Jesus Christ. And it's also true if we reverse that. How can you get to God the Father? Through Jesus Christ. The only way you can get to the Father is through Jesus Christ, his Son. So Jesus Christ is this one who stands between us, between us and the Father, who allows us to have access to the Father and who provides to us the provisions of the Father. And so Paul writes here that the provision comes through Jesus Christ, but this provision is a provision of God the Father. Now, I think this is a very important thing for us to remember in any part of the Bible where we happen to be studying, that the Son is the conduit between us and the Father. And when we think about this doctrine of Jesus Christ as the mediator, the conduit between us and the Father, most often we probably think of passages in the Gospel of John where the Father is the sending one and the Son is the one who sent. Where the Son points people to the Father. That's, it's all through the Gospel of John, but I want you to see that same doctrine is found here in Paul's writings. And uh, there are two theological errors connected to this truth. There's two ways that people get this truth wrong. First is the error that sees the Son as the endpoint or the goal of the Christian experience. In other words, everything in life revolves around Jesus, 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 Jesus. And, you know, there's a truth to that. But that's not all there is. There's another error which states, which overstates the position and the role of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want you to remember so you don't get this thing wrong. Three persons in the Godhead. The Holy Spirit, 
always, always points to Jesus Christ, the Son. Every work of the Spirit is pointing people to Jesus Christ. The work of Christ is to point people to the Father. That's what Christ does. He points people to the Father. Salvation in Jesus Christ is not just going to heaven. Jesus says no one comes to the Father. Salvation is coming to the Father. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus was always directing people to the Father. So when you think about the Trinity, when you think about Jesus being the mediator between us and the Father, he is always pointing men to the Father. You know, if you get that right, if you can keep that in the back of your mind, the Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. Jesus then points people to the Father. If you get that right, it will keep you balanced in a lot of other areas of doctrine. So in the Son's work, the source of the provision is going to be God the Father, but it comes through God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, let's consider the things that are provided. The things provided, verse 5 tells us, it says, Through him we have received grace, that's number one, and apostleship. So what are these things? What are grace and apostleship? Now, grace is favor. That's what grace is. It's favor. And oftentimes we call it unmerited favor, undeserved favor, or unearned favor. I would uh, suggest to you that while it is true, grace is unmerited favor, it's undeserved, it's unearned. When we talk about the grace that comes from God, the Father or the Son to us, it's not just unmerited, it's not just undeserved. It's grace that is undeservable. It's grace that is unearnable. You know, unmerited grace means that, well, you received grace and you didn't actually merit it at that time, but possibly you could at some time merit it. But grace that can not be merited is unmeritable. That's a word I made up. Okay? It's undeservable. It's grace that you could never obtain even if you wanted to, even if you had all the means in the world, you could never obtain it. This is the grace that comes from God. This is the grace that we have in mind when we're seeing it here in verse 5. So grace is a gift of something that is unobtainable for you. You couldn't obtain it. So this means that grace isn't worked for, nor can it be worked for. Grace isn't something that is owed to you, nor is it something that could ever be owed to you. Grace is free for the recipient. Grace is a present, a present, like a birthday present. It's a present. It's a gift. And that means it's always good. It's always good. 
A gift that somebody gives to you, a grace gift, is a good gift. It's never bad. God's grace is never a bad thing. It is always a good thing. And so grace is only received, never earned. You can't earn grace, nor can you work to keep grace. But I want you to also keep in mind as we look at grace here in this verse that grace has limitations. And what do I mean by that? Well, grace can refer to any number of things that God provides to us, but it has to be determined in the context of the passage. And so when we look at grace here, sometimes we just think, oh, this is talking about salvation. That's not true. Grace refers to any number of things in the New Testament. Salvation or justification happens to be one of them. But here we're going to find that this grace is related to ministry. This is related to ministry. And so grace has its limitations. It's limited by the context, or I should, maybe limitation is not the right word. Maybe I should say it's defined by the context in which it appears. And grace is important. It's important for this letter that Paul is going to write. Paul uses the term grace 25 times in this letter. He uses it related to his ministry. He uses it of God's favorable disposition towards someone in general. He uses it for justification. That you're justified by what? Grace through faith. So grace is provided to us by God's grace. He also emphasized the fact that grace is received by faith. Over and over again, he brings this out. So grace is provided is the provision of something that would be otherwise unobtainable. And this is one of the things that is provided here. The second thing that is provided here is apostleship. So we have received grace and apostleship. This is a whole lot easier to understand. It's just the office of an apostle. That's what apostleship means. An office or the position of an apostle. In Acts chapter 1, verse 25, this word is used to describe the position that Judas Iscariot had, the position that Matthias took over. It was that office of apostleship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2, uh, Paul uses this word of himself in relation to the Corinthians. He says, basically, I'm your apostle. I have the office of apostle for you. In Galatians 2, 8, chapter 2, verse 8, Paul uses it of Peter. And he says that uh, Peter has the apostleship to the circumcision. Peter is the apostle, holds the apostle, uh, the office of apostle for the Jews, whereas Paul is for the Gentiles. So this is grace. The things that are provided are grace and apostleship from the Father that come through the Son. So we see where it comes from. We see what it is. And now we want to understand how grace and apostleship are obtained. How they are obtained. 
Look at the verse again. It's right there in the wording of the verse. Through him we have, what's the next word? Received, right? Received. Through him we have received grace and apostleship. So how is grace and apostleship obtained? We receive it. Now what does it mean to receive? I think there's two aspects to what it means to receive. First, in order for you to receive something, doesn't it mean that somebody has to give? Somebody has to give something in order for you to receive it? Also, in order for you to receive something, don't you have to accept it? You have to accept what has been given. Think about it this way. If someone sends you a birthday gift, they send it to you, does that mean you have received it? No, it just means they sent it. If that birthday gift is delivered, does that mean you have received it? No, it just means it was sent and it was delivered. To receive something means you have to accept it into your personal possession. Right? If you're going to receive it, you have to accept it into your personal possession. So this is like a certified letter. Right? Sometimes we don't like getting certified letters. Most of us don't send them. But in a, when you have a certified letter and you mail that letter, you get a receipt, don't you? You get a receipt that says, I sent this letter on this date, and it's going to be delivered by this time. When that letter is delivered, the postal carrier is supposed to get the signature of the person who it's addressed to to confirm that they received that letter, that they accepted it into their personal possession. That's what it means to receive. And so we, Paul says, have received, we have accepted into our own personal possession, grace and apostleship. Now, let's talk about the word we. Who received the grace and apostleship? Did we receive it? Did we? You know, July 2nd, 2023. Did we receive the grace and apostleship that Paul is talking about here? No. No, we did not receive that. There's only three options as to who could receive it. Paul could be referring to the Romans. He could re be referring to the men who were with him. Their names are found in chapter 16, verse 21 through 23. Or Paul can just be referring to himself. And uh, the answer is, when Paul says we, he means me, as in Paul. Paul himself is the one who received grace and apostleship. Now, hopefully your mind is working here this morning, and you say, how can we, a plural word, refer to a singular individual okay so let me let me tell you how that can be first in the first five verses here of this letter 
Paul only refers to himself as receiving or getting anything from God. He's the only, besides God the Father and God the Son, he's the only one that's mentioned here. The Romans haven't been, been mentioned yet. They're not mentioned until verse 7. So Paul doesn't have anybody else in view up to verse 5 other than himself. Secondly, we also see that one of the things that is received is apostleship, the office of apostle. Now, if we take everybody in the Bible who could possibly be an apostle, it's still less than two dozen. That means it's not the church in Rome. It means it's not all these guys that are with Paul. It's a very select group of people who could be apostles. Thirdly, the purpose for the reception of apostleship, and I'm jumping ahead here, but look at the end of verse 5. It says, among all nations. So this apostleship is in some way related to the Gentiles. Well, Paul is going to tell us in chapter 11, verse 13, that he's the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter's not. John's not. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Now it's really narrow. Really narrow. And finally, probably the most um, technical point, is there's this thing in writing called the editorial we. Epistolary we. And it's when someone is writing a letter, and they're writing it from their perspective, but they don't want to refer to themselves, so they say we. And when they say we, they mean me, I, the one who's writing. This is what Paul's doing here. He's just simply referring to himself with the uh, pronoun we. And so the grace and apostleship that is received, it is received by Paul himself. And so Paul is writing here. He has received from God the Father, through God the Son, grace and the office of apostleship. The provision of grace and apostleship is for Paul. He has, given, he has been given these things so he can accomplish the purpose that God has for him. Okay, here's another biblical truth we, we realize. Where God calls, God provides. Where God leads, he equips. God always enables people to accomplish the task that he has given them, always. Even when we feel totally inadequate. Can't do that, never done that before. God enables us, he gives us what is needed to accomplish the task that we have. So who received grace and apostleship? It is the apostle Paul who received them. Now, as we look at the end of verse 5, I want us to see the reason for the provision of these things. The reason for the provision. It says, for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. For his name. And we, we find in this phrase, there are three prepositional phrases. Okay, Notice them real quickly with me. Number one, for obedience to the faith. That's number one. Number two, 
among all nations. That's number two. And number three is for his name. These three phrases give us the reason why Paul has been provided with grace and apostleship. So let's look at all three of these very quickly here. Number one, for obedience to the faith. This is the purpose. This is the purpose for Paul having these, uh, this grace and apostleship. It is to lead people to salvation. That's what that is. Toward, that word for there, for obedience, is the word toward, obedience of faith. It's a direction. It's, it's Paul guiding people toward faith. He's directing them toward obedience of the faith. That is obedience, which is believing, which is faith. And so Paul has been given grace and apostleship in the ministry of guiding people, pointing people to salvation through the gospel of God. Secondly, I want us to notice this uh, next phrase, among all nations. This gives us the scope, the extent, the objects of the ministry that Paul has. He has been given grace and apostleship um, among all nations. So he is to proclaim the message of salvation among the nations. Now, who's included in the nations? Well, Gentiles are included in the nations. And so... Salvation is not exclusively for the Jews. It also includes Gentiles. And that means it includes everybody, including us. We are among the nations. So that's the scope of the ministry that God has given to Paul. Now look at the focus. The focus is the last thing I want us to see. For his name. That tells us the focus. For his name. Uh, in the ancient world, a person's name represented all they were. In this case, his name is referring to the person of Jesus Christ our Lord at the end of verse 4. And so if I could put it this way, this phrase, his name, has within it all of verse 2, all of verse 3, and all of verse 4. That's all compacted together and put in these words, his name. Because his name represents all that Jesus is and all that he has done. And uh, our translation here, I'm going to admit to you, the translation here for his name is a little bit ambiguous. What does that mean? What does it mean, for his name? Some translations say, for the sake of his name. I think a clearer translation is this. On behalf of his name. That Paul's ministry, the reason that he has been provided with grace and apostleship, was on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is ministering 
in the stead of Jesus Christ. Where's Jesus Christ now? He's presently at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That means he's not on earth conducting an earthly ministry. Well, how is Christ working? He works through believers. So the focus of the ministry that Paul has received was on behalf of Jesus Christ. Paul's ministry would ultimately do the same thing that Christ's ministry did, direct people to a right relationship with God the Father. So here we see the reason for why Paul was given the provision of grace and apostleship for this ministry that he had to lead people to salvation among the nations. Now finally, in verse 6, I want us to see an expansion or an addition. Look at verse 6 real quick. Among whom you were also called of Jesus Christ. So he says, among whom, that's the nations, among the nations, you, you Romans, were also called of Jesus Christ. So Paul is telling the Romans, the people that he is writing to, that they have been called, they have been separated out to a similar ministry that he has, namely to tell the nations about the message of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, this is my ministry. This is a ministry that comes to me through the work of the Son. Through him, grace and the office of apostle have come to me, Paul. The reason for this is to point people to salvation, to point them to trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation. And I'm going to do this among all the nations. The world is, is where my ministry field is. And I'm doing it on behalf of Jesus Christ. Then he tells the Romans, you can have part in this. You can have part in this because you are among the nations and you are called of Jesus Christ. So the work of God the Son is to be the conduit through which the provision of grace and apostleship are received by Paul. He's received these things for the ministry of leading people to the point of trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior. A ministry that extends to the nations. A ministry that is expanded so that believers can participate in the same kind of ministry of leading people to trusting in Jesus Christ. So the work of the Son is to, provi is to provide what is needed for ministry. Now I want us to consider the recipients. So any good letter tells you where uh, or who wrote it and who is the recipient. And I want us to look at the recipient now in verse 7. In verse 7. In the first part of verse 7, it says, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. So we see the recipient's location and then their description. Their location is where? 
Rome. In Rome, to all who are in Rome. Now, what's Rome? Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire, right? The city of Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire, which is the capital of the then civilized world. It was an ancient city in Paul's day. It was founded in 753 B.C. This is when King Pekah ruled Israel and King uh, Jotham ruled Judah. It's an ancient city. Geographically, it encompassed seven hills. It was beside the Tiber River, located about 17 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. The emperor at the, in Paul's life at the time of the writing of the book of Romans is either going to be Claudius or Nero who followed him. Nero will be the emperor when Paul is put to death. The population of Rome was about a million people. A million people. You know, there's no city in North Carolina where there's actually a million people. I mean, the Raleigh metro area is like two million people. But Raleigh itself is not a million. It's like 800,000 or something like that. But when you count everybody else around it, it all... It jumps way up there. So there's a lot of people in Rome. Rome had a tremendous road system, right? We've all heard of the Romans' road, the roads of the Romans. Let me say it that way, the roads of the Romans, some of which still exist today. That's how well they were made. They still exist today. And uh, in Rome, there were two roads that came from the south, two roads that came from the east, three roads that came from the north, and two roads that came from uh, the west. And these aren't goat paths. These are like interstate highways. That's how we ought to think about them. So major arteries coming in to Rome. That means a lot of people could come and go from Rome. They had many great buildings, theaters, amphitheaters, baths, circuses, uh, extravagant private homes. The lifestyle of the citizens of Rome was luxurious and leisure. Rome had 159 holidays on their calendar. Can you believe that? 159. 93 of those were for games or performances. So they have a holiday. By the way, the holidays would be government-subsidized holidays. So this is a day off with pay, we might say. So lots of holidays, lots of special days where you don't work. The Circus Maximus, the Circus Maximus, big place where they had things, seated 200,000 people. This is the ancient world, 200,000 people. Theater, the Theater of Marcellus, seated 14,000 people, again, in the ancient world. So th this is a lifestyle of leisure and entertainment. Um, religiously, the city was filled of, with temples to 
all kinds of gods, all kinds of false gods, temples everywhere to all kinds of different gods. Uh, the church initially had contact with Rome that we know about in Acts chapter 2 when there were people from Rome, Jews from Rome, who were visiting Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They're mentioned there. People from Rome heard what happened on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Paul's initial connection to Rome, as far as we know, comes through Aquila and Priscilla in Acts chapter 18. Aquila and Priscilla lived in Rome. And when the Jews got kicked out of Rome, they had to leave. So that's how Paul runs into them. That's his initial connection to Rome as far as we know. It would seem to me, it would seem to me that the city of Rome in Paul's day is a pre-existing microcosm of the United States of America today. Our culture is filled with luxury convenience and entertainment. I mean, you can hear the luxury surrounding us. Listen, do you hear it? You hear the luxury? The air conditioner's running. We're just, our luxuries are so normal to us, we don't even pay attention to it. But our culture is just filled with these things, filled with entertainment. And while you're not going to drive down our road and you're not going to see a temple to Dionysius, you're not going to see a temple to Zeus, you're not going to see a temple to Diana on the side of the road, you will see the temples that we have built to our gods. The temple of convenience and materialism. Sometimes we call it Walmart. <laughs> The temple to human, the human body and athletic achievement, the ball field. And we go to these places and we worship. We worship what it is, ever is there. So probably more than any other church in the Roman world today, we can relate to the Roman church, the church in Rome. Because our culture is very much like their culture was back then. So they're located in Rome. Now let's look at their description real quick. Just two things. Beloved of God or loved of God and called to be saints. So it, wouldn't it be nice for someone to say to you, you're loved of God? I mean, we know that. The Bible tells us that. But it would be, be nice for someone to say, God loves you. Just a nice thing. So Paul is affirming them. You're loved of God. And then he says you're called to be saints. And, and this is saying that their designation, their title is saints. Those separated to God. They're loved by God and they're separated to God to serve him and worship him. So this is who the recipients are, these believers in Rome. Now, finally, we're going to close today by looking at the greeting. Real quick, the greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. This is the standard greeting. Okay, It's the standard greeting that Paul gives. Grace to you and peace. Grace is a take, a, a modification of the normal greeting in the Roman world. 
It's not exactly the same word, but it's very close. And Paul adapts it for his greeting. The word peace comes from the Jewish greeting, how you would greet each other in the Jewish world. And Paul combines these two greetings together. And I think he does it on purpose. He does it on purpose to not only indicate who the audience is, they're made up of Jews and Greeks, but he does it as a kind of subtle reference to the fact that his message His message is going to be related to the Jews and their scriptures. And it's going to be related to the message for the Gentiles. So he says, grace and peace. This is the standard greeting. And uh, let's consider the substance of this greeting. We have already mentioned grace. So what is peace? Shalom in Hebrew. Well, it's peace And the Bible is more than the absence of conflict. It's the idea of wholeness, wellness, completeness. And so when Paul says grace and peace to you, he's saying, I'm coming to you in grace and peace. I want for you grace and peace, wholeness, wellness, completeness. And notice finally the source the source of the greeting. Grace to you and peace from, that's the source, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By invoking both the Father and the Son, Paul is in effect saying, the rest of my letter is not my message to you, It is God's message to you. Paul is saying, I am writing to you under the authority of God himself. And so when we look at the introduction to this letter that Paul gives, we see that when it comes to his ministry, that his ministry is focused on the message, the gospel of God, the message of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is the focus, uh, this is the, the intent of his message. And Paul has received two things that come through Jesus Christ so that he can accomplish this task that God has given him. He's received grace, and this is grace for ministry, favor for ministry, and he has received the office of apostle. Now, We don't need apostles today. There's no apostles today. But we need grace today. And we have grace today. You can't minister without grace today. Paul says that his ministry is specifically to point people, including those dirty, rotten Gentiles, to point people to faith in Jesus Christ and to trusting Jesus Christ. Christ and his ministry is done on behalf of Christ. Now, as we conclude, I want there's three words I want you to remember. Three words. The first word is authority. Authority. Paul is making clear in this introduction to his letter that this letter is not his opinion. This letter comes under the authority of God himself. 
These words are God's words to the Romans. This is God's letter to the Romans. It has all the authority of God himself. Now, when we read a letter from God, we should pay attention to it, shouldn't we? We should pay attention to every word. What if, let's just do a hypothetical here. What if God said to you, okay, God's not going to talk to you, but just hypothetical. If God said to you, I have something special for you, and you need to go pick it up. And I'm not going to tell you where it's at, but I am going to tell you the directions to where it's at. And so he gives you the directions. And in part of this direction, he says, go to the building and turn right. You're following the directions. Do you go into the building and turn right? No. You go to the building and turn right. Because we need to pay attention to every single word because every single word matters. You go to. The, God said go to the building and turn right, not go into the building. And so when we understand that God's word is authoritative to us, we pay attention to even small little things like the word T-O. Every word is from God. Therefore, every word deserves and requires our attention. These words come with the authority of the God of heaven. The second word I want you to understand or think about is implication 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 an implication is a conclusion that is drawn from the text what the text says and what the text means for example next week we're going to talk about how paul says he's thankful to god for the romans okay the implication the conclusion that we can draw from that is that we ought to be thankful to God for other believers. See that? We're, the, the Bible doesn't say, Crossroads Baptist Church, you need to be thankful to God for other believers. That's not what it says. But that's a conclusion that we can draw from the text. That's what an implication is. Now, in order for your conclusions, your implications to be right, you have to know what the text says and means. You have to have the right interpretation. How do you get the right interpretation? You study it. You study the words, you study the context, you study the history of the passage. Because here's the thing. If you don't know what it says, if you don't know what it means, if you don't have the correct interpretation, if you have the wrong interpretation, Whatever implications you draw, they will also be wrong. You won't draw the right implications. So this is something you usually hear on Sunday morning is you'll hear implications from the text. The final word is application. Application. I'm not very fond of the word application because I don't like how it's used. Many people come to church and they want the preacher to apply the word of God to their lives. They, you know, give it to me. I want it, I want it for me today. 
I want it to apply to me today. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter how good the preacher is. He can't do that. Nobody can apply the Bible to you. Two reasons. Number one, application is intensely personal. Intensely personal. For someone to apply the Bible to you, you would have to share your innermost thoughts, your deepest, darkest secrets, your most severe struggles with them. For someone to apply the Bible to you, they would have to know you better than you know yourself. That's not possible, humanly speaking. No person can do that. Secondly, application is an active word. So nobody can apply scripture to you. You could be, the, you're the only one who can do it because it's an active thing. You have to do it. So application is a personal activity. So don't come to a church expecting anybody to apply the Bible to you. That's not how it works. That's not the way the Bible works. That's not how God works. Nobody can do that, not even the preacher. Another problem that I see with this idea of application is application often makes us very self-centered. Consider, I want to apply the Bible to myself. I want to apply, think about the words, I want to apply the Bible to me. I'm the focus, I'm the end result. I'm the thing that is here, and I need to bring the Bible to me. The Bible is the unchangeable, unmovable truth of God. We do not ask God to bring his word and conform it to us. We move to the Bible, and we conform ourselves to the Bible. So instead of application, I prefer the word submission. Submission. We have to submit ourselves to what the Bible says. Okay, two weeks ago, I introduced you to a little slogan, working in and out the word. Submission is working out the word. That's what submission is. We're working out the word in our lives. We are submitting ourselves to the Bible. We are obeying the Bible. So those two words, authority, or three words, authority, implication, application, slash, submission. Three words I want you to think about. Why don't you stand with me and we'll close in a word of prayer.